the novelist chapters one two and three of joseph conrad by hugh walpole this librivox recording is in the public domain the novelist chapter one in discussing the art of any novelist as distinct from the poet or essayist there are three special questions that we may ask as to the theme as to the form as to the creation of character it is possible to discuss these three questions in terms that can be applied in no fashion whatever to the poem or the essay although the novel may often more truly belong to the essay or the poem to the novel as for instance the ring in the book and aurora lee bear witness all such questions of ultimate classes and divisions are vain but these three divisions of theme form and character do cover many of the questions that are to be asked about any novelist simply in his position as novelist and nothing else that joseph conrad is in his art most truly poet as well as novelist no reader of his work will deny i wish in this chapter to consider him simply as a novelist that is as a narrator of the histories of certain human beings with his attitude to those histories concerning the form of the novel the english novelists until the seventies and eighties of the nineteenth century worried themselves but slightly if they considered the matter they chuckled over their deliberate freedom as did stern and fielding scott considered story-telling a jolly business in which one was also happily able to make a fine living but he never contemplated the matter with any respect jane austen who had as much form as any modern novelist was quite unaware of her happy possession the mid-victorians gloriously abandoned themselves to the rich independence of shilling numbers a fashion which forbade form as completely as the manners of the time forbade frankness a new period began at the end of the fifties but no one in eighteen sixty one was aware that a novel called evan harrington was of any special importance it made no more stir than did almayer's folly in the early nineties although the wonderful richard feverall had already preceded it with the coming of george meredith and thomas hardy the form of the novel springing straight from the shores of france where madame bovary and une vie showed what might be done by taking trouble grew into a question of considerable import robert louis stevenson showed how important it was to say things agreeably even when you had not very much to say henry james showed that there was so much to say about everything that you could not possibly get to the end of it and rudyard kipling showed that the great thing was to see things as they were at the beginning of the nineties every one was immensely busied over the way that things were done the yellow book sprang into a bright existence flamed and died art for art's sake was slain by the trial of oscar wilde in eighteen ninety five mr wells in addition to fantastic romances wrote stories about shop assistants and knew something about biology the fabian society made socialism entertaining mr bernard shaw foreshadowed a new period and the boer war completed an old one of the whole question of conrad's place in the history of the english novel and his influence upon it i wish to speak in a later chapter 
i would simply say here that if he was borne in upon the wind of the french influence he was himself in later years one of the chief agents in its destruction but beginning to write in english as he did in the time of the yellow book passing through all the realistic reaction that followed the collapse of asceticism seeing the old period washed away by the storm of the boer war he had especially prepared for him a new stage upon which to labour the time and the season were ideal for the work that he had to do. The Novelist, Chapter 2 The form in which Conrad has chosen to develop his narratives is the question which must always come first in any consideration of him as a novelist. The question of his form is the ground upon which he has been most frequently attacked his difficulties in this matter have all arisen as i have already suggested from his absorbing interest in life let us imagine for an instant an imaginary case he has seen in some foreign port a quarrel between two seamen one has knifed the other and the quarrel has been watched with complete indifference by a young girl and a bibulous old wastrel who is obviously a relation both of hers and of the stricken seaman the author sees here a case for his art, and, wishing to give us the matter with the greatest possible truth and accuracy, he begins, oratio recta, by the narration of a little barber whose shop is just over the spot where the quarrel took place, and whose lodgers the old man and the girl are. He describes the little barber, and is at once amazed by the interesting facts that he discovers about the man seen standing in his doorway he is the most ordinary little figure but once investigate his case and you find a strange contrast between his melancholy romanticism and the flashing fanaticism of his love for the young girl who lodges with him that leads one back through many years to the moment of his first meeting with the bibulous old man and for a witness of that we must hunt out a villainous old woman who keeps a drinking saloon in another part of the town this old woman now so drink-sodden and degraded had once a history of her own once she was and so the matter continues it is not so much a deliberate evocation of the most difficult of methods this manner of narration as a poignant witness to conrad's own breathless surprise at his discoveries mr henry james speaking of this enforced collection of oratorical witnesses says it places mr conrad absolutely alone as a votary of the way to do a thing that shall make it undergo most doing and his amazement at conrad's patient pursuit of unneeded difficulties may seem to us the stranger if we consider that in what maisie knew and the awkward age he has practised almost precisely the same form himself indeed beside the intricate but masterly form of the awkward age the duplicate narration of chance seems child's play mr henry james makes the mistake of speaking as though conrad had quite deliberately chosen the form of narration that was most difficult to him simply for the fun of overcoming the difficulties the truth being that he has chosen the easiest the form of narration brought straight from the sea and the ships that he adored the form of narration used by the ancient mariner and all the seamen before and after him conrad must have his direct narrator because that is the way in which stories in the past had generally come to him 
he wishes to deny the effect of that direct and simple honesty that had always seemed so attractive to him he must have it by word of mouth because it is by word of mouth that he himself has always demanded it and if one witness is not enough for the truth of it then must he have two or three consider for a moment the form of three of his most important novels lord jim nostromo and chance it is possible that lord jim was conceived originally as a sketch of character derived by the author from one scene that was in all probability an actual reminiscence certainly when the book is finished one scene beyond all others remains with the reader the scene of the inquiry into the loss of the patna or rather the vision of jim and his appalling companions waiting outside for the inquiry to begin simply in the contemplation of these four men conrad has his desired contrast the skipper of the patna he made me think of a trained baby elephant walking on hind legs he was extravagantly gorgeous too got up in a soiled sleeping suit bright green and deep orange vertical stripes with a pair of ragged straw slippers on his bare feet and somebody's cast-off pith hat very dirty and two sizes too small for him tied up with a manila rope yarn on the top of his big head there are also two other no-account chaps with him a sallow-faced mean little chap with his arm in a sling and a long individual in a blue flannel coat as dry as a chip and no stouter than a broomstick with drooping grey moustaches who looked about him with an air of jaunty imbecility and with these three jim clean-limbed clean-faced firm on his feet as promising a boy as the sun ever shone on here are these four in the same box condemned forever by all right-thinking men that boy in the same box as those obscene scoundrels at once the artist has fastened on to his subject it bristles with active vital possibilities and discoveries we the observers share the artist's thrill we watch our author dart about a subject with the excitement of adventurers discovering a gold-mine how much will it yield how deep will it go we are thrilled with the suspense conrad having discovered his subject must for the satisfaction of that honour which is his most deeply cherished virtue prove to us his authenticity i was not there myself he tells us but i can show you someone who was he introduces us to a first-hand witness marlowe or another now tell your story he has at once the atmosphere in which he is happiest, and so, having his audience clustered about him, unlimited time at everybody's disposal, whiskies and cigars without stint, he lets himself go. He is bothered now by no question but the thorough investigation of his discovery. What had Jim done that he should be in such a case? We must have the story of the loss of the Patna, that marvellous journey across the waters, all the world of the pilgrims, the obscene captain and Jim's fine chivalrous soul. Marlowe is inexhaustible. He has so much to say and so many fine words in which to say it at present so absorbed are we so successful is he that we are completely held the illusion is perfect we come to the inquiry one of the judges is captain brierly what not now captain brierly ah but i must tell you most extraordinary thing 
the world grows around us a world that can contain the captain of the patna brierly and jim at the same time the subject before us seems now so rich that we are expecting to see it burst at any moment in the author's hands but so long as that first visualized scene is the centre of the episode so long as the experience hovers round that inquiry and the esplanade outside it we are held breathless and believing we believe even in the eloquent marlowe then the moment passes every possible probe into its heart has been made we are satisfied there follows then the sequel and here at once the weakness of the method is apparent the author having created his narrator must continue with him marlowe is there untired eager waiting to begin again but the trouble is that we are no longer assured now of the truth and reality of his story he saw we cannot for an instant doubt it that group on the esplanade all that he could tell us about that we breathlessly awaited but now we are uncertain whether he is not inventing a romantic sequel he must go on that is the truly terrible thing about marlowe and at the moment when we question his authenticity we are suspicious of his very existence ready to be irritated by his flow of words demanding something more authentic than that voice that is now only dimly heard the author himself perhaps feels this he duplicates he even trebles his narrators and with each fresh agent raises a fresh crop of facts contrasts habits and histories that then is the peril of the method whilst we believe we are completely held but let the authenticity waver for a moment and the danger of disaster is more excessive than with any other possible form of narration create your authority and we have at once some one at whom we may throw stones if we are not beguiled marlowe has certainly been compelled to face at moments in his career an angry irritated audience nostromo is for the reason that we never lose our confidence in the narrator a triumphant vindication of these methods that is not to deny that nostromo is extremely confused in places but it is a confusion that arises rather from comrade's confidence in the reader's foreknowledge of the facts than in a complication of narrations the narrations are sometimes complicated old captain mitchell does not always achieve authenticity but on the whole the reader may be said to be puzzled simply because he is told so much about some things and so little about others but this assurance of the authors that we must have already learnt the main facts of the case comes from his own convinced sense of the reality of it this time he has no marlowe he was there himself of course he says to us you know all about that revolution in swalko that revolution that the ghouls were mixed up with well i happened to be there myself i know all the people concerned and the central figure was not gould not mitchell nor moynihan no it was a man about whom no one outside the republic was told a syllable i knew the man well he and there we are the method is in this case as i have already said completely successful there may be confusions 
there may be scenes concerning which we may be expected to be told much and are in truth told nothing at all but these confusions and omissions do in the end only add to our conviction of the veracity of it no one after a faithful perusal of nostromo can possibly doubt of the existence of Swalco, of the silver mine of nostromo and decoux of mrs gould antonio the viola girls of old viola hirsch moynihan gould sotillo of the death of viola's wife of the expedition at night and the painter of decoud alone on the isabels of hirsch's torture of captain mitchell's watch here are characters the most romantic in the world scenes that would surely in any other hands be fantastic melodramas and both characters and scenes are absolutely supported on the foundation of realistic truth not for a moment from the first page to the last do we consciously doubt the author's word here the form of narration is vindicated because it is entirely convincing not so with the third example chance here as with lord jim we may find one visualized moment that stands for the whole book and as in the earlier work we look back and see the degraded officers of the patna waiting with jim on the esplanade so our glance back over chance reveals to us that moment when the fines from the security of their comfortable home watch flora de barrel flying down the steps of her horrible brighton house as though the furies pursued her that desperate flight is the key of the book the moment of the chivalrous captain anthony's rescue of flora from a world too villainous for her and too double-faced for him gives the book's theme and never in all the stories that preceded flora's has conrad been so eager to afford us first-hand witnesses we have in the first place the unquenchable marlowe sitting with fine phrases at his lips in a riverside inn to him enter powell who once served with captain anthony to these two add the little fines there surely you have enough to secure your alliance but it is precisely the number of witnesses that frightens us marlowe unaided would have been enough for us more than enough if we are to consider the author himself as a possible narrator but not only does the number frighten us it positively hides from us the figures of captain anthony and flora de barrel both the knight and the maiden as the author names them are retiring souls and our hearts move in sympathy for them as we contemplate their timid hesitancy before the voluble inquisitions of marlowe young powell and the fines moreover the intention of this method that it should secure realistic conviction for the most romantic episodes does not here achieve its purpose as we have seen that it did in the first half of lord jim and the whole of nostromo we believe most emphatically in that first narration of young powell's about his first chance we believe in the first narration of marlowe although quite casually he talks like this i do not even think that there is in what he did a conscious and lofty confidence in himself a particularly pronounced sense of power which leads men so often into impossible or equivocal situations we believe in the horrible governess a fiercely drawn figure we believe in marlowe's interview with flora on the pavement outside anthony's room 
we believe in the whole of the first half of the book but even here we are conscious that we would prefer to be closer to the whole thing that it would be pleasant to hear flora and anthony speak for themselves that we resent a little marlowe's intimacy which prevents with patronizing complacence the intimacy that we the readers might have seemed nevertheless we are so far held we are captured but when the second half of the book arrives we can be confident no longer here as in lord jim it is possible to feel that conrad having surprised seized upon mastered his original moment did not know how to continue it the true thing in lord jim is the affair of the patna the true thing in chance is captain anthony's rescue of flora after her disaster but whereas in lord jim the sequel to jim's cowardice has its own fine qualities of beauty and imagination the sequel to captain anthony's rescue of flora seems to one listener at any rate a pitiably unconvincing climax of huddled melodrama that chapter in chance entitled a moonless night is in the first half of it surely the worst thing that conrad ever wrote save only that one early short story the return the conclusion of chance and certain tales in his volume within the tides makes one wonder whether that alliance between romance and realism that he has hitherto so wonderfully maintained is not breaking down before the baleful strength of the former of these two qualities it remains only to be said that when credence so entirely fails as it must before the end of chance the form of narration in oratio recta is nothing less than maddening suddenly we do not believe in marlowe in powell in the fines we do not believe even in anthony and flora we are the angrier because earlier in the evening we were so completely taken in it is as though we had given our money to a deserving cause and discovered a charlatan i have described at length the form in which the themes of these books are developed because it is the form that here extensively here quite unobtrusively clothes all the novels and tales we are caught and held by the skinny finger of the ancient mariner when he has a true tale to tell us his veritable presence is an added zest to our pleasure but if his presence be not true the novelist chapter three if we turn to the themes that engage joseph conrad's attention we shall see that in almost every case his subjects are concerned with unequal combats unequal to his own far-seeing vision but never to the human souls engaged in them and it is this consciousness of the blindness that renders men's honesty and heroism of so little account that gives occasion for his irony he chooses in almost every case the most solid and unimaginative of human beings for his heroes and it seems that it is these men alone whom he can admire if a human soul has vision he simply gives the thing up we can hear him say he can see at once that the odds are too strong for him but these simple souls with their consciousness of the job before them and nothing else with their placid sense of honour and of duty upon them you may loosen all heaven's bolts and lightnings and they will not quail they command his pity his reverence his tenderness almost his love 
but at the end with an ironic shrug of his shoulders he says you see i told you so he may even think he has won we know better you and i the theme of almayer's folly is a struggle of a weak man against nature of the nigger of the narcissus the struggle of many simple men against the presence of death of lord jim again the struggle of a simple man against nature here the man wins but only we feel at the cost of truth nostromo the conquest of a child of nature by the silver mine which stands over him conscious of its ultimate victory from the very first chance the struggle of an absolutely simple and upright soul against the dishonesties of a world that he does not understand typhoon the very epitome of conrad's themes is the struggle of mcwhirr against the storm here again it is mcwhirr who apparently wins but we can hear in the very last line of the book the storm's confident chuckle of ultimate victory in heart of darkness the victory is to the forest in the end of the tether captain whaley one of conrad's finest figures is beaten by the very loftiness of his character the three tales in twixt land and sea are all themes of this kind the struggle of simple unimaginative men against forces too strong for them in the secret agent winnie verloc another simple character finds life too much for her and commits suicide in under western eyes razumov the dreamer is destroyed by a world that laughs at the pains and struggles of insignificant individuals of conrad's philosophy i must speak in another place here it is enough to say that it is impossible to imagine him choosing as the character of a story jolly independent souls who take life for what it gives them and leave defeat or victory to the stars whatever conrad's books are or are not it may safely be said that they are never jolly and his most devoted disciple would in all probability resent any suggestion of a lighter hand or a gentler affection his art nevertheless is limited by this persistent brooding over the inequality of life's battle his humour often of a very fine kind is always sinister because his choice of theme forbids light-heartedness tom jones and tristram shandy would have found marlowe jim and captain anthony quite impossibly solemn company but i do not deny that they might not have been something the better for a little of it i have already said that his characters are for the most part simple and unimaginative men but that does not mean that they are so simple that there is nothing in them the first thing of which one is sure in meeting a number of conrad's characters is that they have existences and histories entirely independent of their introducers kind offices conrad has met them has talked to them has come to know them but we are sure not only that there is very much more that he could tell us about them if he had time and space but that even when he had told us all that he knew we would only have touched on the fringe of their real histories one of the distinctions between the modern english novel and the mid-victorian english novel is that modern characters have but little of the robust vitality of their predecessors the figures in the novel of to-day fade so easily from the page that endeavours to keep them 
in the novels of mr henry james we feel at times that the characters fade before the motives attributed to them in those of mr wells before an idea a curse or a remedy in those of mr bennett before a creeping wilderness of important insignificances in those of mr galsworthy before the oppression of social inequalities of those of mrs wharton before the shadow of mr henry james even in those of mr hardy before the omnipotence of an inevitable god whom in spite of his inevitability mr hardy himself is arranging in the background it may be claimed for the characters of mr conrad that they yield their solidity to no force no power not even to their author's own determination that they are doomed in the end to defeat this is not for a moment to say that joseph conrad is a finer novelist than these others but this quality he has beyond his contemporaries namely the assurance that his characters have their lives and adventures both before and after the especial cases that he is describing to us the russian chekhov has in his plays this gift supremely so that at the close of the three sisters or the cherry orchard we are left speculating deeply upon what happened afterwards to gaev or barbara to masha or epikhadov with conrad's sea-captains as with chekhov's russians we see at once that they are entirely independent of the incidents that we are told about them this independence springs partly from the author's eager almost naive curiosity it is impossible for him to introduce us to any officer on his ship without whispering to us in an aside details about his life his wife and family on shore by so doing he forges an extra link in his chain of circumstantial evidence but we do not feel that here he is deliberately serving his art it is only that quality already mentioned his own astonished delight at the things that he is discovering we learn for instance about captain mcwhir that he wrote long letters home beginning always with the words my darling wife and relating in minute detail each successive trip of the nan shan mrs mcwhir we learn was a pretentious person with a scraggy neck and a disdainful manner admittedly ladylike and in the neighbourhood considered as quite superior the only secret of her life was her abject terror of the time when her husband would come home to stay for good also in typhoon there is the second mate who never wrote any letters did not seem to hope for news from anywhere and though he had been heard once to mention west hartlepool it was with extreme bitterness and only in connection with the extortionate charge of a boarding-house how conscious we are of jim's english country parsonage of captain anthony's loneliness of marlowe's isolation by this simple thread of connection between the land and the ship the whole character stands human and convincing before us of the sailors on board the narcissus there is not one about whom after his landing we are not curious there is the skipper whose wife comes on board a real lady in a black dress and with a parasol very soon the captain dressed very smartly and in a white shirt went with her over the side we didn't recognize him at all and mr baker the chief mate is not this little farewell enough to make us his friends for life no one waited for him ashore mother died 
father and two brothers yarmouth fishermen drowned together on the dogger bank sister married and unfriendly quite a lady married to the leading tailor of a little town and its leading politician who did not think his sailor brother-in-law quite respectable enough for him quite a lady quite a lady he thought sitting down for a moment's rest on the quarter-hatch time enough to go ashore and get a bite and sup and a bed somewhere he didn't like to part with the ship no one to think about then the darkness of a misty evening fell cold and damp upon the deserted deck and mr baker sat smoking thinking of all the successive ships to whom through many long years he had given the best of a seaman's care and never a command in sight not once there are others the abominable donkin for instance donkin entered they discussed the account captain allistoun paid i give you a bad discharge he said quietly donkin raises his voice i don't want your bloomin discharge keep it i'm goin to have a job ashore he turned to us no more bloomin sea for me he said aloud all looked at him he had better clothes had an easy air appeared more at home than any of us he stared with assurance enjoying the effect of his declaration in how many novels would donkin's life have been limited by the part that he was required to play in the adventures of the narcissus as it is our interest in his progress has been satisfied by a prologue only or there is charlie the boy of the crew as i came up i saw a red-faced blousy woman in a grey shawl and with dusty fluffy hair fall on charlie's neck it was his mother she slobbered over him oh my boy my boy let go me said charlie let go mother i was passing him at the time and over the untidy head of the blubbering woman he gave me a humorous smile and a glance ironic courageous and profound that seemed to put all my knowledge of life to shame i nodded and passed on but heard him say again good-naturedly if ye let go of me this minute ye shall have a bob for a drink out of my pay but one passes from these men of the sea from mcwhirr and baker from lingard and captain whaley from captain anthony and jim with a suspicion that the author will not convince us quite so readily with his men of the land and that suspicion is never entirely dismissed about such men as mcwhirr and baker he can tell us nothing that we will not believe he has such a sympathy and understanding for them that they will we are assured deliver up to him their dearest secrets those little details mcwhirr's wife mr baker's proud sister charlie's mother are their dearest secrets but with the citizens of the other world with stein decoud gould verloc kazumov the sinister nikita the little fines even the great nostromo himself we cannot be so confident simply because their discoverer cannot yield them that same perfect sympathy his theory about these men is that they have all of them an idée fixe that you must search for this patiently honestly unsparingly having found it the soul of the man is revealed to you but is it is it not possible that decoud or verloc feeling the probing finger offer up instantly any idée fixe ready to hand because they wish to be left alone 
Decoud himself, for instance, Decoud, the imaginative journalist in Nostromo, speculating with his ironic mind upon romantic features, at his heart, apparently cynical and reserved, the burning passion for the beautiful Antonia. He has yielded enough to suggest the truth, but the truth itself eludes us. With Verloc, again, we have a quite masterly presentation of the man as Conrad sees him. That first description of him is wonderful, both in its reality and its significance. His eyes were naturally heavy, he had an air of having wallowed, fully dressed, all day on an unmade bed. With many novelists that would be quite enough, that we should see the character as the author sees him not because in these histories we have the convictions of the extension of the protagonist's lives beyond the stated episodes it is not enough because they have lives independent of the covers of the book we feel that there can be no end to the things that we should be told about them and they must be true things Verloc, for instance, is attached from the first to his idée fixe, namely that he should be able to retain at all costs his phlegmatic state of self-indulgence, and should not be jockeyed out of it. At the first sign of threatened change he is terrified to his very soul. Conrad never for an instant allows him to leave this ground upon which he has placed him we see the man tied to his rock of an idée fixe but he has nevertheless we are assured another life other motives other humours other terrors it is perhaps a direct tribute to the author's reserve power that we feel at the book's close that we should have been told so much more even with the great nostromo himself we are not satisfied as we are with captain whaley or mr bates nostromo is surely as a picture the most romantically satisfying figure in the english novel since scott with the single exception of thackeray's beatrix and here i am not forgetting captain silver david balfour catriona nor in our own immediate time young beecham or the hero of that amazing and so unjustly obscure fiction the shadow of a titan as a picture nostromo shines with a flaming colour shines as the whole novel shines with a glow that is flung by the contrasted balance of its romance and realism from that first vision of him as he rides slowly through the crowds in his magnificent dress his hat a gay sombrero with a silver cord and tassels the bright colours of a mexican zarape twisted on the cantle the enormous silver buttons on the embroidered leather jacket the row of tiny silver buttons down the seam of the trousers the snowy linen a silk sash with embroidered ends the silver plates on headstall and saddle to that last moment when in the dimly lit room nostromo rolled his head slowly on the pillow and opened his eyes directing at the weird figure perched by his bedside a glance of enigmatic and mocking scorn then his head rolled back his eyelids fell and the capatos of the carcadores died without a word or moan after an hour of immobility broken by short shudders testifying to the most atrocious sufferings we are conscious of his superb figure and after his death we do indeed believe what the last lines of the book assure us 
in that true cry of love and grief that seemed to ring aloud from punta mala to azura and away to the bright line of the horizon overhung by a big white cloud shining like a mass of solid silver the genius of the magnificent caputas de cargadores dominated the dark gulf containing his conquest of treasure and love his genius dominates yes but it is the genius of a magnificent picture standing as a frontispiece to the book of his soul and that soul is not given us nostromo proud to the last refuses to surrender it to us why is it that the slender sketch of old singleton in the nigger of the narcissus gives us the very heart of the man so that volumes might tell us more of him indeed but could not surrender him to us more truly and all the fine summoning of nostromo only leaves him beyond our grasp we believe in nostromo but we are told about him we have not met him nevertheless at another turn of the road this criticism must seem the basis in gratitude when we look back and survey that crowd so various so distinct whether it be they who are busied before our eyes with the daily life of sulaco or the verloc family the most poignant scene in the whole of conrad's art the drive in the cab of old mrs verloc winnie and stevie compels additionally our gratitude or that strange gathering the haldens nikita laspara and madame de s peter ivanovich razumov at geneva or the highly coloured figures in romance a book fine in some places astonishingly second-rate in others falk or amy foster jacobus and his daughter jasper and his lover all these and so many many more what can we do but embrace the world that is offered to us accept it as an axiom of life that of all these figures some will be near to us some more distant it is finally a world that conrad offers us not a series of novels in whose pages we find the same two or three figures returning to us old friends with new faces and new names but a planet that we know even as we know the meredith planet the hardy planet the james planet looking back we may trace its towns and rivers its continents and seas its mean streets and deep valleys its country houses its sordid hovels its vast untamed forests its deserts and wildernesses although each work from the vast nostromo to the minutely perfect secret sharer has its new theme its form its separate heart the swarming life that he has created knows no boundary and in this surely creation has accomplished its noblest work end of the novelist chapters one two and three